Welcome to Ontario Labs, the podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrim. I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today on the pod, the disaster predicted in February by Ontario's science table is here. Ontario has recorded over 4,400 cases of COVID-19 over the course of the weekend, just on Sunday. We have a record 600 patients in the ICU, and the province has adjusted its vaccine and restriction strategy in order to compensate, but we're going to talk about that and how we're doing. doesn't feel like it's great, but because we can't all be doom and gloom, we're going to touch on the Liberal and NDP policy conventions that were held over the weekend, which taken together, I think can tell us a lot about where progressive politics in the country are at and are heading right Right now and yeah that should be provide some reprieve and maybe the folks that are thinking about how things might be better in the future and stick around because we're also going to have uh, a conversation between garima and mary Morone on the state of ontario's tribunal system what's happening there a super important topic stick around for that how are you guys doing this week so it's spring break finally it feels the same as every other week given that they're at home <laughs> not in school <laughs> Yeah, last week, I was really regretting we recorded the pod right before the big peel announcement, because I feel like that would have been the most cataclysmic where our Alvin's kids segment of all time. Within minutes, I think of the conclusion of the pod, did we find out that the schools were closing in peel and then it was like a day later, and then they were closing in Toronto. And I think Sam, we're gonna, what are we gonna hear? We're gonna hear something big on on all the other schools not coming back after spring break. The Twitter rumors are that this afternoon they are announcing that schools will be closed at least for a few more weeks as part of the emergency break, which, if true, is so crazy because Lecce literally wrote his letter to parents, which he periodically does, uh, yesterday saying that they would stay open. So clearly internal chaos, which, again, is not the first time this has happened where Lecce has tried to drive the agenda and then been big-footed. So it should be interesting to watch. I mean, Absolutely. multiple times in the last couple of weeks, have they reversed something they only announced a day or two before that? It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think it might be worth just going over some of what we went through last week, all of which happened immediately after we stopped recording last week's pod. So yeah, we had a schools in Peel being closed, ordered to close by the Medical Officer of Health of Peel, Toronto schools the next day. Ontario rolled out its phase two vaccination rollout plan, which introduced hotspot postal codes where vaccines could begin to be offered to those age 50 plus through the provincial portal, as well as 18 plus in some manner that is as of yet unknown to us. But we live um, in those zones, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was excited to see myself on there, but then yeah, also was too. like, oh, wait, I'm in danger. Thank goodness we're over 18 and we live in a hot zone, but holy shit, we live in a hot zone and that's terrible. Yeah, yeah it was that like, great, my vaccine's coming soon. Oh, wait, it might not be. And also big Ralph Wiggum at the back of the bus energy uh, in my brain right now. The next day, Ontario enacted a stay-at-home order closing non-essential retail shopping centers and sending everyone an alert on that Ontario-wide app, basically saying that leaving home except for essential purposes was not allowed. The day after that, another emergency order was given that didn't get as much press attention that permitted the redeployment of health workers to hospitals to deal with the rise of COVID patients in ICUs, as well as transferring patients between hospital sites without patient or family consent. The order also instructed hospitals to ramp down all elective surgeries. So major shift in our uh, health system dealing for what I think at this point is being seen as an inevitable increased load. So taken together, this all seemed extremely bad. And 
yeah, we started talking a little bit about schools, but totally astounding to me to see the public health boards basically go out on this ramp that they were, I think, at, to this point, unwilling to do. They, I think, wanted to move with the province on this, but clearly starting with Peel and then Toronto, they felt like the province wasn't moving fast enough. So I guess to continue where we started off, like how much of a handle does Stephen Lecce and Doug Fowler have over the education system right now? Have they just been completely cut out of decision making? Like as a former EDU staffer, it was astounding to me just to see mass closure of the school system without any involvement from my office. I think that's clearly what's happened. They clearly have made a decision, at least within the minister's office of education, that they're going to keep schools open no matter what. And the experts around them in public health are second guessing that. And I think for a while, the evidence, I think, was mixed. But I think the evidence is now becoming pretty overwhelming that schools are driving at least some spread. And it's pretty wild for them to... It's not even them, right? I think it's really Lecce to continue to dig in on this uh, in such a public way, send such confusing messages to parents at a time when your government is getting killed over inconsistent public messaging. Like, why just add so much complexity? Do you know what I mean? Like, and parents are obviously going to be pissed if the school closures really are being extended. It's a mess. I think that the plot is being missed. We are forgetting as a province and as a society, what our priorities are here. And the fact that our public health leadership is at odds with our government, for me, describes that there is a difference in opinion on what those priorities should look like. And it doesn't matter what the talking points then are of the government. Premier Ford did come out a couple of weeks ago, I I believe at a press conference and said something that we've said a lot on this pod that the health of the public and the economy go hand in hand and you cannot have a thriving economy unless people are healthy and we've got to get the the pandemic on lock basically before we can consider the economy. And, And I think last week was along with the Solicitor General's comments around wanting to see the modeling sort of transpire in the number of people hospitalized, unfortunately, before action was taken for me was that big light bulb turning on and just saying there is a huge divergence in what public health leadership is recognizing as the priority right now and where our government is. So I think one of the biggest outcomes of the decisions that the Peel Officer of Health and the Toronto Officer of Health and the ramifications of what they did last week is huge because I remember at some point between phase one or wave one and wave two of the pandemic, there were municipalities calling for more restrictions. And then the provincial government saying, you have the power to do this, go ahead and do this. But nobody was willing to go outside of the provincial recommendations. And so the lead of that was constantly still with the provincial government. This act, and really, it's the Peel Officer of Health who started it. It was the first one to break ranks and say, no, and what you're doing on the provincial level for us is not enough. You are not doing this in the best interests of the safety of the people in this region. We are going to do more. And that, I think, empowered the Toronto region to do the same thing. And now other medical officers of health across Ontario will see this as, a, as an option for them moving forward. And I think that's very significant. One of the things that was the most striking to me was now we are at a place where schools look like they may be closed by the province, potentially, if this Twitter rumor proves to be true. Certainly, 
the province has shifted their tune on the severity of this. But just as early as late last week, the the response to the Peel Officer of Health making this decision was quite caustic from the provincial government. They didn't come out outright and criticize, but they definitely were pissed off by it. Like they created that moment that was shared a million times on Twitter where Doug Ford saying schools are safe and then the Chiron being schooled and Peel closed there, which just amazing television there. But moreover, the statements from Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce after this decision was made is basically a disagreement with the Peel's assessment of the severity of the situation. And we, the fact that we were seeing case counts, we were late last week, and we still had provincial government officials believing that this was still not something that was severe. And that was an astonishing quote from Sylvia Jones, basically saying that before we took action, we wanted to see people show up in the hospital. Like, what the hell? I want to turn a little bit to the vaccine rollout plan. The province made a lot of people, including myself, a stand up and take notice when they mentioned people 18 plus would be eligible for vaccines in hot zones. They released this with a bunch of postal codes. However, I think what we've seen in the days since is a lot of local municipalities and public health units scrambling to come up with the details on how this will be action. What do we know here? What do we think of the announcement? And what do we think we're going to see in the coming days from this piece? Like, what do we, how do we process this? All of my family, immediate and extended, in the GTA is in a COVID hotspot in, in one of those postal codes. When I saw that that deck and that slide that was circulating either on WhatsApp or through Twitter, I took note because that meant that this existential anxiety that I've been feeling at a very micro level about my own loved ones was not only real, right? Like it was, it was now showing up in this one slide but that there might be hope for getting a vaccine sooner for people that aren't in in the age groups of above 65 right now. And so that to me was exciting. But I think what we've learned since then is that an announcement was made without any thought. And for me, just spoke to, again, how much these communities are seen as an afterthought. And so it's, we'll make the announcement because it might sound good, but the actual mechanics and the logistics of getting vaccines out of making sure that you have enough people to administer the vaccine was just not there. And so for me, it propagated this feeling that these communities are and these people are afterthoughts. And now, like over the weekend, we saw very happily people turn out in Thorncliffe Park, for example, for some of the pop-up vaccination sites that are opening up. And... For me, I think that speaks to two things. It's not necessarily about vaccine hesitancy that many people have been talking about, but rather just bring the vaccines into the community and work with local community uh, leaders to get the vaccine out. But also something about the pop-up just struck me at the core again in, in that why aren't there appointments being made available for these people? Why are they waiting in line for hours on end to get the vaccine? There's a discrepancy between how people in hotspots are being treated relative to others. And so getting the vaccine out quickly, I know that is the ultimate aim, but the process speaks volumes about the dignity with which we treat people. And I think that was made very clear. Exactly to your point there, Grima. I don't understand why they have this provincial system online booking rollout for pharmacies for you to go in and get it at a clinic. And 
it's not going to apply to these hotspots. And for everyone 18 plus, we have to what? Watch Twitter to see if there's a hotspot a mobile site for me to line up for for hours in order to get my shot. How hard is this? It's exactly what you're saying. There was no forethought to them making this announcement and saying, this is how you're going to get your vaccine. Or even just give us like, in a week, we're going to we're going to have this system. We want you to know that you're a priority. We're going to make sure it's as simple and straightforward as every other process that we've created so far. And then do that, right? You can take the time and do it properly. Tell people that this is your goal and then do that. But it's just so haphazard in terms of how they put this together to the point where, you know, one of the rumors and discussion going around Twitter right now is why did they pick these particular locations? There are other locations, other postal codes that seem to have higher infection rates or higher transmission rates, and they don't seem to be included. And then the allegation right now is that those are all opposition writings. I don't think that the Doug Ford is that, you know, Machiavellian that he would actually do that because that would just be the most awful, despicable thing that you could actually do. I'm only going to give vaccines to my supporters. I really honestly want to believe that's not true. Given that, given the possible perception that's what people would take, why would you even roll it out that way? Why wouldn't you try to address that? Why wouldn't you try to make sure that wasn't true in this case? It just seems... They're just, again, flying by the seat of their pants. I I don't have much to add. I'll just say over 3 million adults, over 4 million people, including kids, live in those postal codes. Like it's almost one in three people in Ontario. So which, you know, tells you about how many hotspots there are. But so for the rollout to be so poor, now it would be unforgivable even if it was a highly targeted list. But I just mean like you had everyone basically in the province being like, am I on this list? And then A, that wasn't even online for the first day or two. And then to Alvin's point, you can't sign up on the provincial website. So like people are sending around these fucking weird links that some of which look sketchy because these public health units have put them together very quickly or their hospitals have put them together very quickly. Like it's such a mess. And imagine if you have a language barrier, an accessibility barrier, any other barrier that would prevent you from fully accessing this information. I just think it's it's unforgivable. Of course, there was going to be a lag. I don't s- criticize the fact that there's a lag from announcement to implementation because I don't think they could have kept it quiet to have all this getting organized. But just be honest with people that we intend to do this. It will be rolled out on such and such a date. Here's where you'll get more information. But they didn't do any of that. No, it's one of those things that I, I would separate policy a little bit from implementation. Like I fault the government totally in its weird fucked up announcement of this for all of the reasons that we've talked about. But I do think it is good, way too late, but good that they are at least thinking of shifting resources in this way. And if I can say one thing that those of us dealing with frustration with this, I'm sure the province saw its role as directing the vaccine supply at a very high level. And here's how we're going to do it at a high level. The supply is still not what it would be to vaccinate all of those 4 million Ontarians this week. So it was always going to be, I think, that delay to your point, Sam. But yeah, why they weren't more ready for that in the communications like that is the most predictable thing in the world i want to talk one more aspect of the vaccine eligibility and that is we learned a lot about who would be prioritized in phase two last week so phase two is where a lot of those workers that are going to be unable to work remotely including a first group that includes teachers school bus drivers child care food manufacturer and agriculture that then 
grocery, pharmacy, retail, warehouse worker is the second tier. Every public health unit has its own plan to navigate this sort of hierarchy of eligibility, but that's the group. So I'm curious, what do we think of this sort of modified phase two, the groupings, the tierings, how it all comes together? They certainly responded quickly to some of the movements to get we on this pod, we talked about teachers getting getting uh, vaccinated as well. So they seem to be moving quickly to try and get those other frontline workers that uh, weren't initially prioritized. So uh, that's good. Yeah. I was just gonna say, I think that's really good and needs to happen. If there's anything to further push them on, though, is to say, okay, essential workers, especially those that are low or moderately paid, it shouldn't be considered to be the next in the vaccine queue just because we need them to work. If we start with the dignity of people, then think about whether the the work uh, and whether their employers are creating spaces for dignified work. And yeah. so getting them vaccinated, of course, is of priority. And I don't want to lose the thread on that. But we also can't lose the thread on the other things that communities have been calling for. And to sound like a broken record, that includes protected paid sick leave. That includes better wages, right? I think a package of things that support essential workers is necessary. Starting with the vaccines is a good start, but there is more that needs to be done. And again, I don't know why they just don't do it. Like, just let's do play it. a let's play a game. Will they cave on paid sick leave if this third wave just continues to spiral out of hand? Like at, at some point, are they going to cave, or have they just totally dug in? I think I feel they like dug they, in at this point already. Yeah, I would be shocked if I did, and I actually would see it as a very positive sign that the pride that they've exhibited has somewhat reality has broken through that sort of what they clearly see as, but a like. Cave. The polling numbers that came out, I talked about this last week, Sam, there was a poll that came out since last week that showed the liberals within half a percentage point ahead of them. If that continues, if there's one or two more polls, then maybe. Maybe, but they have shown no restraint in embarrassing themselves. We've done it for (laughs) several weeks now. (laughs) So I don't think it's that, right? Like, I think they just clearly think this is that it's not the right thing to do. Like they must believe it in their hearts. But like the thing is that we're small businesses that have been shuttered or have not been operating at their full capacity over the past year. Like this argument that paid sick leave is too expensive for businesses. Like, I just don't know. Isn't it better to provide that type of protection to your workers rather than being closed for a year? I just don't understand. Even I, I don't get it. And I really would hope that somebody would explain it to, to somebody like me that's trying to assess the trade-offs that businesses have to make. Oh, and they're a fan of time-limited tax credit. So even if you have no friggin' idea how much it's going to cost businesses, be like, we're introducing the paid sick leave tax credit. Give your workers paid sick leave and some proportion of it will be deductible next year. That's all you need to do. And because they've shut down so much of the economy, it could be highly targeted, right? Like it could just be grocery and manufacturing and the essential things. Like it wouldn't have to be a huge cost liability. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's crazy to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good thing. The only thing I'll add on the just the vaccine phase two plan is that The one thing that I think it says about the provincial government is that they view their role as advice giver over a large and devolved system. And that clearly 
is not something that is working for everyone. I You saw mayors talk about, complain this weekend about how, why is it that teachers in Niagara can get vaccinated early, but I'm getting flack from my constituents that our rules are different. So as public health units take this provincial advice, prioritize worker groups differently, all this kind of stuff, I think creates a hugely confusing thing for people to navigate because if you have relatives in different parts of the province and you're we're in this phase where some people are in some people aren't at different times who knows like i have no idea how to give advice to my parents who call me or about eligibility i don't know how to answer how eligible i am right now and so i really think that afterwards this is a a protocol and a system that we need to rethink because this devolved authority on who's eligible at what and public health units will make local decisions like that might work for a lot of areas of governance in Ontario it does not work for this so that was my last little soapbox thing I wanted to say on this so shifting away mercifully from the pandemic for a moment both the federal liberals and the NDP had policy conventions this month Alvin let's maybe start with the the liberals and go over what happened at the convention and what kind of major messages we heard from Justin Trudeau so let's just start with the process because uh, this is a, a biennial convention it's supposed to happen every two years it's uh, it always rotates around the country big love in obviously for liberals across Canada and dozens of proposals are put forward by local writing associations and those are voted on throughout the week Now, out of all of those, 26 of them passed, and then those 26 were further than prioritized down to a final 15. This included a Green New Deal. Uh, a number of things that you know progressives like talking about, but also a couple of things that I think was disappointing that they didn't move forward on. Things like raising taxes on capital gains, as well as inheritance wealth tax, which the dele- delegates sadly rejected. One of my delegates from the leadership convention was actually quoted in the CBC article, Jake Landau, who said, please tax me more. This is for my future. And he's he was a young liberal. I think the priorities that are worth talking about are the ones that sort of ended up in the top five. And of that, number one was National Pharmacare. Number three was long-term care, having standards for a long-term care system across Canada. You also had high-speed rail in there. But number two and number five were both proposals for a universal basic income. And then obviously, I've been supportive of that. And I know a lot of people who are working behind the scenes to get that done. So congratulations to them to for doing that. That being said, though, I did see a lot of pushback on social media this weekend, either directly directed at supporters for proposing UBI in the first place and all the regular discussions we have around that, because there's definitely a lot of cynicism around that process, but also a lot of criticism around the process of how the party does things, because there's definitely a lot of thought that why doesn't the government do this already? This seems to be a policy of the Greens supported, the New Democrats supported. Are they going to do anything And that's how the sausage is made. This is going to take a very long time to actually get done. And obviously, there were CERB examples and other examples around the Canada Child Benefit around UBI as part of the argument that this is already being done. I don't know what else to say to those people other than I guess you have to be patient and hopefully we'll see something in the upcoming platform. But Paul Wells said, covering the convention, that liberals want to do everything. And if you look at the list of priorities that they voted for, that's true. So you know, it is what it is. And some of the criticism is fair. The last note, though, is that we have a budget coming up next week on Monday. And so a number of ministers were obviously in front of cameras. And what made me really happy was that they were talking about and alluding to childcare being a significant part of uh, the budget coming up. So at the same time, I do remember Paul Martin making this promise back in the early aughts. So don't hold your breath too long. But I really hope to be surprised on Monday with some sort of real childcare plan. 
Yeah, absolutely. These policy conventions are interesting sections of the party because they tell you where the party membership is at, what it thinks about there, but not necessarily what it's going to end up in the platform of the government. So they're instructive as to the movements that support these parties are, but they often have limited impact on sort of the machinations of government itself. And there are moments for parties to put in the window messages, things, highlights that might influence public opinion, because those things are reported on. And that can be good or bad. If we think about the conservatives, the resolution to affirm that climate change was real did not succeed at that conference, which is something that was brought up in Trudeau's speech several times. So if we look at what the NDP talked about, they adopted a resolution for a green recovery. So climate change, clearly top of mind. Delegates overwhelmingly passed a resolution for a federal jobs guarantee, which is basically, I think, what a lot of people would position as an alternative to universal basic income that would provide a guarantee of work in health, education, childcare, and green energy. They voted to increase the federal minimum wage to $20 and impose a 1% wealth tax on people who uh, make $20 million or more. Seems reasonable to me. But it was interesting because there were also almost as notable as the resolutions that made it through were the long list of resolutions that did not make the policy floor. They almost every story that was published about the convention mentioned a lot of technical difficulties and significant frustration from delegates who wanted to bring policy proposals forward that they got little to no time to uh, actually debate or discuss those things. And it was interesting because I have no doubt that the NDP's uh, policy, what makes the floor, what makes debate was quite open. But when you actually, you know, look at a three-day convention, you actually have limited time. So they clearly had some implementation hurdles in getting their large and diverse base to feel like their voices were reflected in the process. And that landed up in a tweet from Canadian Young New Democrats basically expressing disappointment in the conference itself, which is probably not the headline the NDP wanted coming out of this. If we take just these two conferences, the policies that they talked about, what does it tell us about where the progressive movement in Canada is right now? Any reflections? Chris, I think it's good for the progressive movement because the more you have the left of center parties competing to, you know, outdo each other and help people better, uh, the better ideas we're going to get in terms of how to implement them and, and who to help. So that makes me feel good. And some people are asking on social media what the difference is between these parties at the end of the day. And I think a lot of it will be how these plans will actually get implemented and how will they roll out. I do think, though, that future planners of both these conventions will be looking at whether or not they would ever do it again at the same time. Because I think, at least on the NDP side, I think they got compared to maybe unfairly, what the governing party was able to to put forward in terms of a show. Was it the, intentional that they were at the same time? Or was it just... I don't think it was intentional. They were, they've been off for weeks, right? The Conservatives did theirs a few weeks ago. They definitely could have fit theirs in, in, in into another week. So I don't know why they would do that. So I think it was an unfavorable comparison for them. And whether or not the liberal one was better or not, I, I think that's up for debate. It, certainly, they put on a better show, right? They knew who their audience was. They knew that the media was covering the, the whole thing. And they definitely were very conscious of that versus the NDP, who I think definitely showed more of the grassroots, how the sausage is made for uh, things and parties. It, certainly made it feel more organic and less scripted, which is great for authenticity, and that the party really does value each member and giving everyone an opportunity to speak. But that's not necessarily a good thing, I want to say, because sometimes you've been in some of these sessions in in 
in special rooms talking about a specific policy. And there are fringe groups in every party. And if you give them the microphone, they're going to say things. And so when it's done at a convention site, the media is not covering that because they're only covering the main room. They're not going into all these other breakouts, but in a virtual session, they are. So you get to see all those things. And in terms of the debate, the last thing I'll say about this is that, yeah, the NDP had fewer debates, but they had actual debates, but they didn't get to talk about all the things that they wanted to talk about versus the liberals who had far fewer debates, but actually covered way more topics because you need 50 people to ask for uh, a debate in the liberal convention in order to actually have one. So I don't know. I think both both parties will be looking at it pretty closely to see what works better and what doesn't and what's better for the, the current environment that they're doing it in. Yeah, I'd say for me, politics aside, looking at what the policy ideas were. And again, I think we should have a deep dive on basic income. I think we should review the PBO's latest costing because there's a lot to be unpacked with the PBO's latest report. And I think detrimental to advocates for a basic income. And But all of that aside for me, and perhaps somebody can tell me, where did housing come in? Did housing come in? If there is something that people cannot afford right now, it's housing, whether you're trying to rent or whether you're trying to buy. And so that, for me, felt absent in the debate. You are absolutely right about that. Because, yeah, if I'm reading this, green energy, green economy, clearly a theme that's common across both. Income support and income supports for people, clue something that's common for both. A difference in taxation. The parties, I think, probably got the messages that they wanted out of difference in opinion over taxation and the future of that. But yeah, housing is part of the conversation is so important. And we talked about it last week, but it is an area where conservatives clearly have a theory of the case. And I think progressives would think that it's the wrong theory of the case. But what is our vision for it. And I expect that there's a lot of politics and fear about touching it because how do you talk about affordable housing without touching a lot of where a lot of middle class Ontarians have their wealth, which is in their houses. So it's interesting to see them potentially sidestep that really important question. I think the only thing I'll add is I do think that the commentary that the membership of the NDP and the Liberal parties are very close now is correct. Like, I, there was a stronger fiscal center or fiscal right, if you want to call it that, to the Liberal Party base of 5, 10, 15 years ago that is clearly no longer in the majority. And that has implications, certainly, I think, for, I think it's politically probably salient of the moment it's clearly following the impulses of their leader it has it will have implications and it creates space for the conservatives yeah oh and it's very interesting to see each of the leader's speeches justin trudeau's message was very much here's our priorities they are different than the conservatives priorities and jagmeet singh's speech was very much about taking credit for pushing the government into some of the popular things the government has done in the pandemic, CERB, high rates, high rates of subsidy and support. And so they're clearly, the NDP clearly is trying to associate itself with the government. And that is substantiated by polling that actually came out of Abacus this weekend that basically showed that NDP voters, current, like hard NDP supporters, are more or less dissatisfied with the liberal government. They want more. That's why they're NDP supporters. But potential NDP voters, those that pool that the NDP needs to reach into, are 
more or less satisfied with the government right now. They're not, they're more worried about a conservative government coming in than a the liberal government being too conservative. It was interesting to see that sort of positioning take place and creates, I think, a difficult position for the NDP if continued high satisfaction with the Trudeau liberals continues, because I think there's a lot on the left who are much more worried about a conservative government. Uh, so quickly, before we go, I want us to turn to the rapid fire and starting with the tragic death of Prince Philip. I just saw everyone reacted this weekend. And I don't know what you guys, I had no idea. I had so many like hardcore royal haters and then hardcore royal stands. I just don't think about the royals on a daily basis, except for when I'm watching The Crown, but just a weird weekend. Will Meghan Markle, what was the reaction to that? I mean, she's very pregnant. She shouldn't be flying. Was that a good reason not to go? I don't know. And I was looking at this. Are you at the point where you think this is a cute old man who died and stood by his wife for decades and the perfect example of a man standing by a strong woman? Or is he just a relic of imperialism? He's rich, possibly racist, inbred old man finally dying at the age of 99. A little bit of both. <laughs> Can I admit that I didn't know who he was? Like, that I had to look up that he was the husband of Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> I, like, I do not follow the royals at all. But, no. you know, sad somebody died, obviously. He he visited yeah. Canada more than anywhere else. Like, he's been here 40 times. Like, he loved coming to, what do they call it, the senior realm here in Canada? But, yeah. And it, it, the whole thing is weird. I don't know. I found myself sitting in, in somewhat, I just, like, exhausted, like muting of people who are both like engaged either posting fancy pictures with like cursive writing like a lifetime of dedication and service and then there were like other people who were like have you heard that this guy is racist and it's of course the whole monarchy is racist so anyways that is what it is we also heard uh, a lot of speculation over the p potential entries into the liberal leadership field there was mark carney who uh, you know without saying how so that he'd be supporting the liberal party in the next election nahid nenshi stepping down saying he wasn't going to run for another term as, as mayor and so a lot of that got a lot of speculation there's also christian freeland forever perennially considered i think to be the heir to the throne do we have a any thoughts on how these three names will impact the next leadership race liberals love 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 talking about the next leader like it's a pastime of liberal operatives and voters i think it was fascinating had this convention gone in person like i would have loved to see the draft nenshi signs pop up and the mark carney for canada buttons come around i thought it was hilarious that pierre polyev immediately attacked mark carney when he was on the he was in cabinet that approved him as the governor of the bank of canada way back when Stephen Harper was prime minister and said and has been on record saying a number of phenomenal things of how Mark Carney helped the conservative government get out of the recession back in 2008. But this will be fascinating. That's like the dream uh, scenario where you get these three heavyweights between Freeland, Carney and Nenshi. But I don't think anyone's even asked if Nahid Nenshi is a liberal, right? Like he could be a new Democrat, especially out of Alberta. He could be working for Rachel Notley in the next election. That could be where he wants to go. I don't know. Fair enough. I, I still think Christie is the next leader, but yeah. Only a uh, federal party without a female leader at any point in its history so far. Interesting fact. <laughs> yeah. I, I would also say that my only reaction to this is I think liberals are way too leader focused, not, not member focused at all. That just might be the nature. It's always been, the nature of the Liberal Party, but I would love to. I'm glad we spent some time this episode talking more about what the Liberal 
membership wanted than what potentially who the next leader is going to be. Because at the end of the day, that person is going to need to capture the heart of all these people who want universal basic income, a Green New Deal, and hopefully someone that can bring affordable housing into the, the mix too. That's maybe we'll, we'll, we'll end it there for today, but uh, stick around. We'll take a quick break to, and we'll be back with Grima's conversation with Mayor Moroney about tribunals. Hey, so before the end of the interview, I just want to talk about some of the ways that you can support the pod as a listener. So the first way is to go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and sign up for one of the tiers of support. This is a low monthly amount from $3 to $5 to more if you'd like that helps us do things like pay for our technology costs, our hosting costs, bring on more people to help with graphic design, with communications, with research, uh, and ultimately allows us to do more and dream bigger as a pod. Thank you to those uh, of you who already do support. You've helped make this possible to date. And if you like what you're hearing and you haven't yet, uh, head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud today. You can also head to the iTunes store and leave us a star review and even better, write something in the comments about how you like the pod. This helps us greatly with the iTunes algorithm, which helps the pod generally. Understand times are tough. Uh, if you don't have cash, head to the iTunes store and leave us a review. All right, that's enough housekeeping. On to the interview. Welcome back. For our deep dive discussion today, we're going to focus on an issue that has received attention over the course of the past year, but needs more as it can have far reaching implications for Ontarians and the administration of justice. We're going to be focusing on the tribunal system in Ontario and discuss what the tribunal system does, how the system has been undermined over the past couple of years, and the very real consequences of all of this in our everyday lives. Joining us for this much needed discussion, I'm so pleased to have Mary Maroney. Mary is a member of Tribunal Watch, a group of people with a deep concern for the integrity of Ontario's system of tribunal justice. Many members of Tribunal Watch have current or recent experience in Ontario's adjudicative tribunals or as advocates appearing before these tribunals. Previously, Mary was the Director of Advocacy and Legal Services with the Income Security Advocacy Centre. As always, there's a lot to discuss, so let's jump right in. Mary, welcome to the pod. Let's start the discussion and let's start with the foundation. What are tribunals in Ontario and why are they important? So tribunals are a very important part of our justice system. They take the place of the courts in specific narrow fields of law that affect a lot of Ontario residents. The benefit of them is that they specialize. So you'll have something like a landlord-tenant board where the decision makers have expertise in landlord-tenant law. In addition to having specialty and expertise in the law itself, they can also tailor the processes for the parties in front of them. If the parties that typically appear before one tribunal are particularly vulnerable or unrepresented, that factors into the kind of procedures that the tribunal might use. They're usually faster than the courts and the rules are a little bit more relaxed. So it's easier to navigate if you don't have a lawyer representing you. And they matter because they actually resolve more disputes than the court system does. The number of cases that go through are higher than the number of cases that get processed in our court system. They play a pivotal role 
in people's lives. And it, people are much more likely to end up before a tribunal than before a court. And the decisions they make can have a profound impact on people's lives. So they deal with the issues that people live with every day. So the Landlord-Tenant Board that I mentioned earlier deals with housing issues. And if you're under threat of eviction, it's a place you can go to try to protect yourself from eviction. The labor boards deal with workplace issues. We've got the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, which is where you go for violations of your human rights under the Ontario Code. And the Social Benefits Tribunal is the place to go if you're denied social assistance benefits. And this is just a handful. There's a much larger number of tribunals. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go back to the history of the tribunal system. And can we discuss how they started in Ontario? In fact, tribunals apparently go back hundreds of years. Our common law system is based on the UK system. So they've been in existence for centuries in the UK. The Ontario tribunals, they're primarily a post-war phenomenon. And they often develop as part of a new regime of a statute that changes, say, housing law. And then within the same statute, you create a tribunal that will adjudicate the disputes. It's not a system that was all created at the same time. Like the Labour Board has a very strong and well-respected history, respected by the people who use it, respected by the courts, because tribunal decisions are under the oversight of the courts. So they're not completely separate. They're there to provide a more accessible place to adjudicate specific disputes. But if they, they stray outside their mandate or stray outside the law, you do have recourse. There, there's judicial review of their decisions available. The stronger the tribunal, the less that recourse is used. So the, for the labor board, it's rare for a case to go to judicial review. A tribunal like the Social Benefits Tribunal has, I'd say, a bit of a spottier history. My understanding is that it first was developed under a different name, it used to be the Social Assistance Review Board in the 60s. You might be familiar with CAP, the Canada Assistance Plan, when there were a lot more mm -hmm. strings attached to transfers from the federal government. One of the strings that used to be attached was provinces had to have an appeal process in their decisions mm -hmm. around conferring benefits. So that started in the 60s. And then in the late 90s, when we've got the current social assistance regime, the Social Benefits Tribunal was created. And it's, it hasn't had a strong history as a labor board. One of the problems was it used to be, it used to sit inside the Ministry of Community and Social Services, which at least did not have the appearance of independence because that ministry appears in front of the tribunal regularly. You've got this odd situation of a tribunal reporting to a ministry that it also has to adjudicate its decisions. Uh, the other problem is not completely unlike the courts, there, there was a history of patronage appointments where people were, and this isn't limited to the SBT, where, you know, these appointments were rewards for loyal party members. So those are the things that I think advocates and tribunal members have been working on to modernize and create a more professional tribunal system that has some of the key cornerstone principles governing them, like clear independence, impartiality, the expertise that makes them unique from the courts. There's a, a key, what I would call a watershed moment in 2009. Okay. The previous government brought in legislation that I would say went a long way towards modernizing our tribunal system and bringing them up to a, a consistent standard. So what, it, what that legislation did 
was it entrenched a competitive merit-based appointment process, which is intended to take patronage out of the picture and ensure, and the, the statute itself sets out what some of the requirements are to some of the minimum requirements for being an adjudicator on a tribunal. So that that was very important. And, and then there, I, I believe there's a directive, this part is not in the act, but that would set the term limits at, the, your first appointment would be for two years. If there is good performance, you're renewed for three. And then again, if there's still good performance, you're renewed for five. So typically you could have an expectation of a 10 year career in one tribunal, and then you could move to another. The second thing that the legislation did was that it moved some tribunals like the SPT out of their line ministries and over to the ministry of the attorney general so that it sits more clearly within the justice system. So I think that recent history then is really important to understand in terms of the processes that have been undertaken to help separate the powers a little bit and, and exactly. ensure that ensure that the entity that is making the policies and regulations isn't the same entity that's then adjudicating on them. Exactly. And so if we're to move forward to today and think about the work of Tribunals Watch over the past year, it's really helped to shine a lot of light on how the tribunal system has been undermined in recent years. And so can we get back into that a little bit. What's been happening and why is it so concerning? It's really concerning because I thought we had pretty good legislation that entrenched these very important principles. Clearly, it's not strong enough because it's been undermined over the last year. It effectively eroded all the achievements since 2009. Tribunal Watch was set up about a year ago, and the first public statement was in May of 2020, sounding the alarm that there's a crisis in the tribunal system. And what had happened between 2018 and, and 2020 was the number of adjudicators who were the decision makers had dropped almost by 50% in most tribunals. So you lose half the capacity that the tribunals had before. And that's enormous. That has an, an enormous impact on the people who appear before it. The other observation was they were not renewing people who had performed well in their jobs when, as people's terms were ending, they were just not renewed. Okay. And this was particularly important at the leadership level, the executive chair. At, at the point where Tribunal Watch got started, the executive chair position had which at that point oversaw 19 tribunals because they were pulling. One thing I didn't talk about earlier was that some tribunals have been clustered for a number of years, which initially was controversial. This again, back in 2009, 2010, but turned out to be quite good. The social justice tribunal brought together the landlord tenant board, the SBT, and I think actually improved the competence. It improved with, with greater resources. Those tribunals performed better as part of a cluster. So this government created a new cluster of 19 tribunals. The executive chair was there on an interim basis. Each tribunal has its own associate chairs. Those, those people were gone. So in addition to having the number of members cut in half, they lost the leadership, the good, strong leadership that they had. Right. And then as adjudicators were leaving, they weren't being replaced. So you've had both reduction in capacity and de-skilling of all of these tribunals. 
And then the problem shifted as they started making appointments. They weren't really, they've been complying with the technical requirements of the act, but not the spirit of the act. Even the executive chair was initially appointed for six months, which means you can avoid the, the competition process. And that's a very powerful role. They over, the position overseas, now it's reduced back down to about 13 tribunals, but they have control over a large number of appointments. And several of the associate chairs that were appointed don't have the skills that their predecessors had. We're back in the world of patronage. Wow. I'm letting that sort of absorb a little bit. And I guess for me, the concern with everything that you've raised, there's a number of concerns. Let me dig into one area is that with the pandemic, we've seen need grow a lot, right? People that have been made marginalized through our systems, people living in poverty, people facing evictions are really experiencing significant hardship, both before the pandemic, and that's been exacerbated or deepened through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that's happening at the same time now, as you're saying that the undermining of this, the skill set and the qualifications of the very people that are responsible to help adjudicate the tribunal justice system is happening. And so for me, it, it feels like there's a bit of a double assault that's taking place through stealth, almost in which people aren't going to have access to the high quality tribunal system that they have the right to because of this, the chipping away of the system through the de-skilling that you're talking about. That's a perfect description of, of what's going on. The problem started before the pandemic. I'm just going to say on the appointments, to be fair, some of their recent appointments have been better. I don't want to, I don't want to trash everybody who's been appointed in the last six months, because there are, in fact, some very good people. But a lot of damage has already been done in terms of who the leadership of those tribunals are and the kind of training programs that they have. But it doesn't change the fundamental problem that's happened in the last year. And the worrisome thing is that pre-pandemic, I was speaking to some of my former colleagues in the clinic system. And I'll talk about the SBT for a moment. And they already had a huge backlog of cases back in February 2020, which was before the lockdown. And at that point, some of my colleagues say they had cases that had been waiting 15 months for a hearing from the time of filing a note and appeal. And the target date used to be six months between filing the appeal to getting the hearing, that when they were at full complement, they were meeting. And think about what that means. A person who applies for ODSP, they have the initial application process that takes a number of months. Most people who apply for, so ODSP is the provincial social assistance system for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Most people who are applying for it are on Ontario works while they wait. So these are like extremely people living in extremely low income. They're they're getting $707 a month from Ontario Works, and they're applying for disability benefits. Now they have another year to wait. Between the application process and the appeal process, they are probably waiting up to two years. And during that wait, they continue to have to survive on $707 a month. So that, as I said, that some of that was happening before the pandemic. 
but the impact of the pandemic as even things like the food banks all op- aren't all operating the way they were before. And food banks have become entrenched in our safety net. They're not a, a sometime thing. They are part of your monthly budget if you're on social assistance. So when that disappears, I don't know how people have survived, to be honest. We've had folks from the food bank system join us on the pod and the the growth that they've seen in the past year in terms of food bank usage has just been drastic. At the beginning of the pandemic, sort of reduced capacity just to ensure that all staff and volunteers were safe. But at the same time, there was a surge in need taking place. And yeah, to your point, that one year difference for somebody that qualifies for ODSP, but is receiving Ontario Works, it's like a $500 per month difference, let's say, mm-hmm. rough estimate, which turns out to be $6,000 over the course of the year. Now, if they're successful, they'll get the retroactive, right. but that doesn't help them survive that, that year. And what does it do to their health mm-hmm. uh, to have to live in that deep poverty? You're pushing people into poorer health and deeper poverty because of this. And in effect, people on social assistance have already lost their appeal rights because it's taking so long to get a hearing. That is already a loss of appeal rights. So let's get into that a little bit. You've noted that there's many tribunals in Ontario, from the Human Rights Tribunal to the Landlord and Tenant Board, all of which serve different functions. There's been some concern recently about the Social Benefits Tribunal and how restrictions around the right of appeal could affect people living in poverty and receiving social assistance. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. The first thing I'll say is that there have actually been no government announcements. So we're having, I'm having to put together pieces of the puzzle that I find in different places to try to understand what's happening and what might be coming. So As I said earlier, the Social Benefits Tribunal hears appeals from denial of benefits. And that can be a wide range of of issues. For people on Ontario Works, it can mean you didn't comply with the conditions that you were put on you, whether it was if you have to go to a resume writing workshop, if for some reason you couldn't get there, you can be suspended. Your benefits can be suspended. For non-compliance. That's over the years, that's been quite routine. I, I don't know how often that's happening now that during the pandemic, I assume those things have moderated. If you're told you have an overpayment, the municipality or the ministry will make mistakes on your checks and you're told that you owe money and you don't even understand why, you can appeal that overpayment to the tribunal. But the vast majority of appeals that go to the SPT are in fact a denial of disability benefits. And this has its own history that advocates have been working on for more than 10 years. The application for ODSP, it's complex, it's onerous. There's no support provided to people. You have an application form that's completed by doctors. The the form itself is not clear about what the ministry expectations are. And then it goes to a unit called the Disability Adjudication Unit, which is a government, these are government employees making decisions on a high volume of cases. And I've seen a lot of those decisions, and they're often based on the absence of evidence. They expect reports from doctors. They they expect diagnostic reports like MRIs, but they're not that clear that they need to be included in the application process. 
So a lot of people are turned down, who, people who are absolutely entitled under the Act, but they have an inadequate application. The government can ask, they can look for more evidence, they can ask for more, but they rarely do. If the evidence is inadequate, they'll be denied. So the recourse is, there's, first of all, there's a number of steps you have to take, which make it more complicated. You have to ask for an internal review, and then you appeal to the SBT. So it's at that stage that applicants usually get legal help from clinics around the province. And the main thing that clinics do to assist people is help them gather the evidence that they need to prove that they meet the test for disability. And because the first level of decision-making is so poor, the rate at the SBT overturns those decisions is unusually high. So 60% of appeals that go to the SBT get reversed. So that stands out as a big number. So you know, the question is why? And what advocates have said is you've got a problem with your application process. And that for a long time, government wouldn't acknowledge that. And the Auditor General hasn't liked that number either. So ironically, the previous government finally acknowledged the problem and we're trying to make changes. But since 2018, that work got stalled. And the Auditor General, in its 2019 report, once again highlighted that 60% reversal rate and made a recommendation to change the appeal process, to look at other models. So instead of fixing the problem, which is the application process, they want to change the appeal because they want to reduce the number of successful appeals. And the model they recommended was the one that's being used in British Columbia, where the success rate for appellants is 5% instead of 60. And it's because the BC model has a much narrower grounds of appeal. So for example, in BC, unlike Ontario, the appeal is not an opportunity to bring forward new evidence and look at the full case. You can't submit any more evidence. And the only thing they can decide is whether the original decision maker made a reasonable decision based on what they had in front of them, which undermines the whole purpose of the appeal. And then they also insulate the appeal tribunal's decision from court oversight. They try to limit what can go to a court. Because in Ontario, not only do you have a right of appeal to the social benefits tribunal, you can also appeal to the divisional court. So that's what the Auditor General recommended in 2019. And more importantly, it's what the ministry committed to examining other models and that they would look at, bring forward those models by March, 2021. So given what was happening at the SBT with letting the tribunal erode down to half the numbers and letting the backlog build to a year and a half to hearing, it starts to look like a crisis is being created so that you can make the changes that you want to make. What the government should have done was explained to the Auditor General that the rule of law requires a different solution than just limiting the appeal. But instead, the recommendation was embraced. And it's compounded by, this, this gets technical, but in last fall in 2020, there had been a review of Legal Aid Ontario. And in part of its review, they're always concerned about the clinic resources that are being used for SBT appeals, which is a concern that legal aid resources are going towards correcting the mistakes being made by another ministry. So that's been a live issue for years. What the Auditor General commented 
that not to be concerned about that because according to the Auditor General, the ministry had made a lot of progress in developing a new model and they actually had timelines for implementation. So I have to read the Auditor General's report to find out what's going on inside the Ministry of Community Social Services on appeal rights. And the fact that it's coming from the Ministry of Community Social Services is also a concern. It didn't come from the Ministry of the Attorney General, right. which is where the SBT sits. At the same time, there were rumors swirling that it was happening soon, that there'd be a government announcement in, in March, and we didn't get that announcement. So I don't know what the status is today, whether they're moving ahead on that or whether it looks like it's been paused for the moment. But because it's all happening behind closed doors, we don't really know. In the world of a pandemic, again, when we're talking about whether people can actually get the documentation that they need to make their case at the forefront, it strikes me that if the process was challenging before the pandemic, it's even more challenging now when arguably more and more people might actually need access to benefits like ODST, mm -hmm. right? Because can you actually get to a doctor? Are the, the forms being filled out properly? If something is missing, are you able to go back on a timely basis? And so that kind of, you know, that everyday sort of transactions and decisions that people have to make delay their ability to put in an application and it might not be full sum or it might not be complete from the ministry's pr perspective. And it, it compounds the problem a little Absolutely. bit. And the, the healthcare system is under so much strain right now. And a lot of doctors are providing services by video or by telephone. Right. So you might be asking, you might be working with your doctor by telephone right. in the course of getting them to complete the forms. And you might not have access to the testing, the diagnostic testing that's going to provide the evidence because that's all backlogged in the hospitals. So yeah, everything, everything is compounded. What's happening in the healthcare system creates its own delays. And yeah, so it's quite stalled right now. People are being left to flounder. Wow. Okay. Maybe... If we could move to another area, maybe where the government is showing some movement and wanted to get your insights on whether you think it's a good development or not. But the Ministry of the Attorney General recently announced a new justice accelerated strategy, an investment of $28.5 million for a, a digital case management system to help reduce delays and backlogs at tribunals. The plan also includes moving more services online and expanding remote hearing technology to more courtrooms across the province. And so wanted to get your take on this. Do you think that there is an opportunity here for something positive? What are some considerations and challenges that we should be thinking about? This is interesting. You could probably do an entire show on this because there, there are so many pieces to this. Okay. What we haven't talked about yet is the acceleration of digitization already that happened under the pandemic because in-person hearings have become have disappeared sbt is certainly not doing any in-person hearings so they've moved exclusively to video and that's that's a concern the the first thing i want to say is the backlogs and delays that are happening in the tribunals are not happening because of the lack of technology or the lack of digitization so of course better technology 
especially in case management, is a good thing and will improve things. But that's not what's causing the backlog. That's not what's going to solve it. The, the backlog is caused by the reduction in the number of decision makers. So it's the wrong solution for this problem. And digitization creates its own problems. The SBT has been doing video hearings for a number of years. And initially, it had a rocky start with poor technology and hearings cutting out in the middle. By working with stakeholders, I think they were moving towards video hearings that, that worked for clients and worked for, for their counsel. But what's happening now is it's happening without consultation and without regard to whether or not the person who the party who's appearing before the tribunal even has access to internet services. So it's about more than case management. It's about the hearing process itself. So if the, if there were hearing rooms available, let's say somewhere in Sudbury so that a Toronto member could do that hearing, that's great. Cause if it's going to enhance access that way, mm -hmm. but if your expectation is that clients are doing their hearings from home, they may not, have, they probably don't have internet because it's expensive. They probably don't have a computer. Uh, they might have a phone. And so they're going to be doing their disability hearing on their cell phone. And their lawyer is somewhere else. Now, the successful model that clinics had been piloting is having the client participate in the hearing from the clinic itself. So the lawyer and the client would sit inside the clinic's office and do the hearing. That worked for everybody. But again, the pandemic makes that impossible. Clinics don't have the space to provide safe, safe location for clients to use their offices. And so I'd say this is a mixed bag. It, like, technology is great. If you're using it to enhance access to justice, then it has fantastic potential. But if you're not paying attention to the barriers that uh, people have, and, and just to be clear, there are people with disabilities for whom this could be fantastic. They, it's much easier for them to work from home through computers. Mm -hmm. And they often do have, that is their connection with the world. I don't want to dismiss technology and I don't want to dismiss digitization because I think it does have fantastic potential. Whether that potential will be realized under current conditions, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't want it to become a smoke screen for, right. or an excuse for not fixing the initial problem. Okay. Then on that note, and as the last question for you, if you had the ear of a minister or a government on this, what would be your top piece of advice? How would you, how would the implementation of that advice better serve Ontarians, especially those that have been made marginalized and been made vulnerable to our systems? If I had to choose, I don't know if it's one or two pieces of advice, consultation, I think is critical to any major change. It's really important to talk to the people who've been doing this work for decades. It's really important to talk to people who will be using these tribunals. There's, there's a lot of knowledge and expertise out there on what makes for a successful tribunal system. And when you're making changes that affect the people who appear before them, you need to talk to them because sometimes things look really good on paper, even with the best of intentions. You don't always understand the impact that it's going to have on the lives of people that you don't understand what their reality is. We take for granted 
having a laptop, having a phone, using Dr. Google, like all those things that we do every day that we take so for granted isn't available to everybody. You need private places to have a hearing. You can't go to the library and use a computer there, even if it's open. So I think that's the most important thing they could do is talk to the experts. And in that expertise, I include the people who've been involved in tribunals for years. Tribunal Watch itself is working on a statement of principles, and we're trying to develop some guidelines on what makes for uh, a good tribunal system. And I think working with some of the, we've got some very learned people on our advisory council, academics and former judges. And I would take advantage of their expertise and the people who are using the tribunal now. I, th I think that's the, 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 the critical piece. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mary. As a reminder for folks listening, Mary Maroney is a member of Tribunal Watch, a group of people with a deep concern for the integrity of Ontario's system of tribunal justice. Previously, Mary was the Director of Advocacy and Legal Services with the Income Security Advocacy Centre. Thanks so much for listening. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andry. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.